listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, I'm Koroi Hawkins. Coming up... PNG has a backlog, which is embarrassing to overseas mission heads. PNG's foreign minister wants to expand the diplomatic service, but can the country afford it? Also... The, the proponents of MPAs should not expect there to be big positive benefits in terms of tuna stocks. A new study of no-take marine protected areas finds they do little for tuna conservation. And later on... Being able to go out into like, different places and areas that share special connections with our community was really special. We speak with some lucky young Pacifica photographers who took part in a National Geographic Society training camp. The new Papua New Guinea foreign minister, Justin Chichenko, wants the diplomatic service revamped and expanded. This includes a number of new embassies and other services around the world, but this comes as the country's diplomats have revealed they have often been forced to meet some expenses from their own pockets because of funding issues. Don Wiseman asked the executive director of the PNG Institute of National Affairs, Paul Barker, whether opening more embassies was a good idea. Well, in theory it's a good one, but one st- first has to start by uh, trying to support those foreign missions that we already have to improve coordination, to use funds better, for example, using uh, internet mechanisms for accessing information about PNG, for effectively getting visas and all these sorts of things. The missions that we have around the world have often functioned on a <laughs> an oily rag and at the expense of the heads of missions in many cases maintaining their own facilities their own websites doing things out of their own pay in many cases it's not been possible for turnovers replacement staff to travel or to replace existing staff because there isn't the money for their transition, for their placement. And in the past, we've had this situation where we've opened up several new missions and then a while later had to do a rationalization and actually cut back to uh, recognize which missions are most crucial, maybe uh, replace embassies with honorary consuls and others. So it's, you know, it's like many things here. There's an inclination to go grand, to expand, But this country has got real financial constraints. Revenue is tight. The country is borrowing heavily. It's had major deficits since 2011. And uh, and the cost of borrowing is going to to increase invariably again. Global lending costs have, have risen. So it really is important that government focuses on what its priorities are, make sure that missions that it does have are adequately funded and, and is realistic. In the budget that the government passed late last year, do they make a, a greater allocation to foreign affairs? Yes, they've made a significant increase, partly on a temporary basis, but uh, a significant increase for foreign missions, a, a substantial amount of 42 million for paying rents and other mission costs which is envisaged to sort of drop back subsequently but also a, a substantial increase in general uh, mission staffing costs and related expenses so yes there is 
a big boost that has been provided for uh, 2023, envisaged to drop back somewhat, but then to be sustained at a higher level than in previous years uh, into the future. So would you see this as overcoming all of these issues of diplomats having to pay out of their own pocket? Well, budget allocations we are not necessarily always followed. It's a budget appropriation ceiling, and within the year it depends on whether revenue is actually secured, and there are a lot of competing demands, including uh, a doubling of the allocations to the district's all around the country, are controlled very much by the local members of parliament, and they'll be pressing hard for their funds to be released during the course of this year, as well as for other priorities. And of course, it requires the revenue, and the revenue is tight and pretty uncertain, and, uh, and we continue to have a major budget deficits, and therefore requiring major public borrowing, both domestically and in internationally. So yes, it's a, it demonstrates a commitment to increased funding, and one certainly would expect to see some level of increased funding, but not necessarily to see uh, the end of, of tight budgets and, and challenges for the heads of missions. And your feeling remains that this is one of these many grand gestures, and because there is such a small pool of money, it should be going toward far more basic costs. Absolutely. We have major law and order issues, we have basic infrastructure issues and other domestic challenges. And, uh, and while it's important to be promoting PNG internationally, we need to make sure that, that health, education, uh, infrastructure and these services are delivered to, to Papua New Guineans. It's difficult to market the country internationally if things are not going well domestically. But nevertheless, yes, it is important that the missions overseas are adequately funded to do their job because many of the staff have been doing a valiant job overseas but uh, for many years but really struggling to uh, to be able to uh, perform their tasks including to be able to pay some of the uh, international fees that PNG has a backlog owed to international UN international commodity and other organizations which is embarrassing to overseas mission heads No-take marine protected areas in the Western and Central Pacific Ocean have had little impact on tuna stocks, according to a new study published in Frontiers in Marine Science. The study found the Phoenix Islands protected area in Kiribati, one of the largest marine protected areas in the world, had a negligible impact on the conservation of skipjack and big-eye tuna. The lead author of the paper, Dr. John Hampton of the Pacific Community, spoke to Caleb Fotheringham. The study was to address, I think, what we saw as a, as a gap in, in the consideration of the establishment of these marine protected areas and that no one had really done any sort of quantitative evaluation of their impact on the species that they were meant to protect. Now, these MPAs, as we call them, have likely been established for a variety of reasons, but we saw quite often that the positive effects on tuna conservation were being put forward as a major reason for establishing the, the MPAs. And so our study wanted to actually quantitatively test that hypothesis that MPAs were having some effect on the tuna stocks in general. So we used a, 
high-resolution spatial modelling approach to basically conduct simulations and test how the stocks behaved both with and without the marine protected areas in place and do those sorts of comparisons. Right, and what you found in the study was that these marine protected areas do not affect the tuna population that much, is that correct? That's right. We ran what we call counterfactual simulations where we assumed that these marine protected areas were in place over a, a period of, uh, of about 20 years uh, and then compared that with the actual reality to see what the difference that they would make had they been in place for that period of time. So it's a reasonably powerful approach and the models that we use are pretty realistic in terms of uh, how they treat the biology and, and the geography of the region as well. We feel that the models can be quite informative. If it doesn't affect the tuna populations that much, is there much point in having these marine protected areas? Well, it may still well be um, a rationale for having marine protected areas. It's just that uh, when these things are being considered, I think the, the proponent of MPAs should not expect there to be big positive benefits in terms of tuna stocks of the region. And, and what we've seen in the ones that have been established, particularly in media reports, is that there does seem to be a perception that there would be large positive effects of marine protected areas in, in protecting tuna stocks. And it just doesn't seem to be the case for, for the reasons that we outlined in, in the study, the, the movement characteristics of tuna, the way that larvae are dispersed in currents. They tend to dissipate any effects of a part of the, the region, typically a small part, but, but sometimes more substantial, being closed. The other point as well is that when these areas are closed, what we typically see is that the fishing vessels that would have fished for tuna in those closed areas, after they're closed, they don't disappear from the system. They just move to other areas of the Pacific and fish there. That tends to also reduce the sort of uh, effect that MPAs might have on tuna stocks. The judicial crisis in Kiribati shows no sign of ending three years after it began. The Kiribati government has been trying over that period to remove Judge David Lamborn. Don Wiseman joins me now to look at the issues. So Don, let's go back to the beginning and why the government wants to get rid of Mr Lamborn. Well, this is such a long saga. David Lamborn, he's Australian. He's had a long career around the Pacific, working within the judiciary. He's been a judge in Kiribati for nearly 30 years. And in 2018, he was appointed a Puni judge by the government, meaning he could sit on the High Court. In 2020, he was delayed in returning from Australia by the pandemic, the government stopped his wages and refused to issue him with a work permit and they stopped him from later on from boarding a repatriation flight. These decisions were later overturned by the then Chief Justice Bill Hastings. But just as Lamborne didn't manage to get back into Kiribati until August of last year. At that point, the government came up with allegations of misconduct and tried to deport him, but airlines refused to carry him. Mr Lamborn has taken legal action and Judge Hastings has ruled in his favour, as did the Court of Appeal in Kiribati. Now, why did they want to get rid of someone who has given so many years of service? Well, it happens that he's married to the opposition leader, Tessie Lamborn, and you'll find plenty of people who will tell you 
that the reason they're trying to do this is to undermine Tessie Lambourne. Of course, reaching the government to have them actually tell us is impossible, it would seem. No one ever answers a phone. Emails never answered. We just don't know precisely from them what's going on. Now, it's gone on for three years, as you say. Why is it still dragging on? Well, those other judges have been removed. The Court of Appeal judges, who are New Zealanders, were dumped after overruling the deportation order for Mr Lambourne. In a statement at the time that they were removed, the Kiribati president, Tanis Mamau, had the gall to say, the government of Kiribati will continue to stress that it's vital that judicial integrity underpin judicial independence so the rule of law does not become a vehicle for autocratic judicial tyranny that robs our good and honest people of their sovereignty. And the government came up with a scheme to remove Bill Hastings, who had also been stuck in New Zealand by COVID throughout 2022, set up a tribunal chaired by a civil servant and included a lawyer and a local magistrate. But uh, Mr Hastings was denied a chance to review the findings before they were tabled in Parliament late last year. The tribunal had found in the government's favour, no surprise, and Mr Hastings resigned in December and has now resumed his role as a district court judge in New Zealand. Now, Judge Hastings' lawyer was former New Zealand Attorney General Christopher Finlayson QC, and he said in a statement to the Kiribati government, he was very concerned at the disregard of natural justice and mistreatment of a well-respected jurist and decent man. He said it's his hope that Kiribati will move forward from this episode by reinstating an independent judiciary, restoring the country's reputation as one which respects the rule of law and separation of powers. Legal organisations from around the world have been saying similar things since the story came to light, but Kiribati seems to continue blithely on and the lights are still out at the High Court. And going into 2023, is there any indication that, that there'll be movement on, on this front? Well, the High Court, pretty much nothing so far. Judge Lambourne was the only justice and the government's yet to appoint any replacements. In October last year, they did appoint, controversially, their own Attorney General, that's Tessiro Semolota, as the Acting Chief Justice in place of Mr Hastings, who at that stage had been suspended. Now, current opposition MP and the country's first president, Irimia Tabai, says the government's meddling in the judiciary is as we've mentioned earlier, all about trying to destabilise the opposition. He said that's the whole reason the country's judiciary is in the mess it's in. The opposition had planned a vote of no confidence in the government over the matter, but it hasn't managed to achieve this yet. 20 Pacifica teen photographers were offered the opportunity of a lifetime when they were invited to attend a workshop organised by the National Geographic Society. The society is renowned for its storytelling with powerful photography and imagery. Its magazine is one of the most popular in the world, having produced some of the world's most iconic photos. And at Pacific's Finau Funua has more. The young photographers, all of whom are still in secondary school, underwent five days of training at the Motumuana camp in Blockhouse Bay, Auckland. The participants learned how to tell stories through imagery, combining photography with writing and poetry. A graduation ceremony was held on Wednesday for the 20 Pacifica participants from New Zealand after an extensive training program, which included tutorials offered by veteran National Geographic photographers and storytellers. 
National Geographic photographer and PhotoCamp founder Kirsten Altsner said she was impressed by the work produced by Young Pacifica talents. We had an amazing group of 20 young people from all over South Auckland and around the city、um, share their stories with us through photography and writing, and it was a powerful experience. Their families and communities came.、Um, they. Produced some incredible photography, and they really owned their stories. They kind of leaned into the power of their own voices. But it was a combination of words and photographs, and it was also a combination of their spirit and energy, and just the life that they brought to、um, their own community and to their community with one another. Seventeen-year-old participant Telesia Tonoai. Said she applied for the program after seeing an advert calling for young Pacifica photographers. Tanawai said the photo camp organized field trips, teaching students how to represent and express their culture. Through photography, the photo camp for the past five days, we've actually been taking field trips.、Um, a group of us would go to Mangere Bridge or Otara Market.、Um, some of us went to K Road, the art museum,、um, and like Samoan cricket.、Um, and we've just, as Pacifica kids, have just been taking photos of what catches our eyes and been learning skills on how to make the most of a picture. And、um, just making the most of trying to rip our culture. Another 17-year-old participant, Tuila Vailua, said she was ecstatic when she found out that participants were being offered tutorials from top-notch National Geographic photographers. She said the photo camp provided an opportunity for young Pacifica photographers to connect with each other. If I had been told this like a year ago that I would be going in the National Geographic photo camp, I probably wouldn't believe you.、Um, but yeah, it's been such an amazing experience and such a great opportunity to meet other people,、um, other like-minded people like me. It's so privileged to have photographers from. National Geographic、um, fly all the way down here to New Zealand to teach us all these different camera skills,、um, and、uh, being able to go out into like different places and areas and out, all that that sheer special connection with our community was really special. Supported by Air New Zealand, the photo camp is one of five held over the summer. It targets youth across the country. Elsner said one of the aims of the series was to teach young Kiwis from minority groups. About how to represent their communities through photography and storytelling. We worked with the Rainbow Community in Northland last week. We worked with the Maori Community in Motapara, and we are working with Pacifica Community here. And that is because we're trying to really create a story about all of the diverse voices of young people throughout New Zealand. The National Geographic Society hosts photo camps all over the world, promoting storytelling of their Local communities through photography and essay writing. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Utolukia. <laughs>